Welcome to the Learning Curve Podcast, everyone. My name is Bob Bowden of Choice Media, your home for news about education. And we are changing things up a little bit this week in an oh-so-excellent way. See, Kara, the great Kara Kendall, is traveling. So instead, we've lined up someone who is also great, the great Alicia Thomas Cromarty, formerly Alicia Thomas Morgan, as a fill-in co-host. And Alicia, thanks so much. How are you doing? Thank you, Bob. Happy to be here. I'm doing great. Okay, and just so people learn a little bit about you, you're a former six-term state legislator in Georgia, co-author of the state's constitutional amendment to create a state charter authorizer. I love the story about Georgia, by the way, when the state Supreme Court said charter, st- uh, state authorized charters were unconstitutional. And so you guys said, oh, okay, so we'll go we'll change, change the constitution. constitution. <laughs> it's like you imagine the court like saying, damn, they got us. <laughs> we, anyway, author of the interdistrict school transfer law in the state, former superintendent of Ivy Prep Schools in Atlanta, a charter school I had visited for girls in the Atlanta area, which was excellent. And as if that weren't enough, now CEO of something called Fearless Chic. So what is Fearless Chic? It's Fearless Chick. Oh, okay. And it's really a brand and a business. Yeah. uh, And it's all about getting women in particular, but all people to live fearlessly. Like no more afraid to be and do what they really want to do, making those choices, you know, uh, aligning their life and all that they do with who they really want to be. So let's stop checking the boxes. Let's do the things we're called to do. That's what it means to be fearless. Okay. And you spell it without a K. You spell it C. Correct. C. Okay. Yeah. Just being a little, you know, jazzy with it. That's all. <laughs> okay. And is, is, are men allowed in this uh, group? Yes. Yes. Chick, okay. All right. Chick does not imply females only or anything. Okay. Right. I call you fearless chicos. How about that? Okay. Oh, good. So, and then one last thing about you, what is something called the Rena Carter Foundation? So it's a brand new foundation. I started for a friend actually, and we focus on financial literacy, Um, and also college access. So I'm a first-generation college student. We serve other students who are first-generation, teaching them how to access scholarships, go to college debt-free. Hello, we know that's a huge issue in this country. Um, And then it's also to help disrupt generational poverty. We want to teach and empower families um, with the financial literacy skills they need so they can make good decisions. Right. Um, and I've long been like a like a lone. Vo- I feel like I'm a lone voice screaming in the wilderness about financial education that we, uh, we spend all time kinds of time in high school on utterly on things that we know kids will n- almost never, never use. Never. And, and almost everyone will need to know about mortgages and about the yes. stock market and about yes. bonds, and about just what is a checking account and yeah. all those things. And, 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 you know, a dividend and all this stuff. And so rarely are those things taught. You're right. And some states and Georgia is one of them. Uh, it is a required piece of the curriculum, but it's not done enough. And to your point, like you graduate from high school and you don't know how to balance a checkbook or, you know, what how to really use that, you know, plastic thing that has no emotion to it. So you're just spending, spending, spending. Um, and then I'll tell you this, Bob. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> one thing that I'm worried about. Right. Um, even what we're teaching young people now, 10 years from now, are, will our 401ks and 403bs and IRAs be the they'll same? Be new. They'll they... be like 504js yeah. or something, right? Right. It'll be a new thing. Yeah. So it's a whole skill set that we need to teach young people so that they can be prepared for life. Hello. Got it. And then I have also always associated you as a Georgia gal. And so I'm just curious, did you grow up in Georgia, I'm guessing? I grew up in Florida, actually. Oh, 
Born and raised in Florida, came to Atlanta to go to college and never went back. Okay, because I had on my list for my notes, I had uh, I was doing like songs. So I had I came up with Georgia on my mind. Yeah, I came up with Devil Went Down to Georgia. And then for the real deep dive pop historians, I came up with That's the Night That the Lights Went Out in Georgia, which I'm guessing. Do you know that song? I've not heard that one. Oh, before your time. Is, am I missing any big Georgia songs, any titles you can remind me of that I song like famous songs with the word Georgia in the title? Midnight Train to Georgia. Ah, I love Gladys Knight. Oh, That's a good I, one. I, oh, it's a great one. I'm shamed by my omission. <laughs> All right, let's get to the stories. We, we, I've been goofing around too much. All right, story number one facing. Okay, so this is about Louisville, Kentucky, facing hot, heavy opposition from parents and alumni. Of the magnet schools in the Louisville area, Jefferson County, Kentucky, the school board members there seem poised to end, not the end the magnet schools, but in the magnet schools ability to kick students out. In its first public discussion of the county proposed changes and to how it assigns students to schools, the school board said this week it was time to restrict magnets so-called exiting ability. So public schools, of course, are supposed to educate all students, but magnets don't, says board members James Craig. And um, and now that's the article, and now this is me talking. I think we know these arguments that, you know, all students should be offered challenging educations, not just the special needs students, not just the average students, we'll call them, or, 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 but also the gifted students. They should be challenged as well. For many, that means... Uh, AP-type courses, advanced placement courses within a traditional public school, but other times that means an entire school for gifted or talented kids called magnet schools. And while the whole magnet paradigm has been under attack in the last, I'd say, 12 months, notably New York City is one such place, this Kentucky story, like I said, is not focused on whether magnets should exist, but whether they their academic and behavioral standards should continue after admission, meaning once a student gets in, are they there for good? Or should those magnet schools be allowed to say, well, actually, you know, it's you're really not quite cutting this academic rigor. It's better for you to go back to a traditional school. So, Alicia, what do you think about this debate in Louisville? You know, Bob, this is a tough one for me. Um, First of all, I used I um, back in the day used to serve as a peer reviewer for the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, and some of the federal programs that are funded in schools across the country. One of the programs I reviewed was the Magnet Schools Assistance Program, um, which uh, funds programs like this. And so when you, of course, know the history, right, it's all about diversity and making sure there's, um, you know, racial equality in terms of schools. And so you know that there's a need for magnet schools in addition to um, sort of the specialty programs that they offer, but also to make sure there's some diversity in that, you know, you're not having segregated schools. Okay. Okay. But when you look at a policy like this, where you are able to exit students, whether it's academically, behaviorally, whatever, who are the kids that are most impacted by these rules? Black and brown kids, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, remember, this is not admissions. We're talking about here, this is for the kids who are already admitted. No, we're talking about exiting. We're talking about, about I can can remove you from my school because of your behavior. So we don't need to argue the point that when we look at schools across this country and look at who is disproportionately uh, impacted by behavioral policies and who's being suspended and expelled, it's black and brown students. So I think having these exit policies in place are harmful to black and brown children in particular because 
of the disproportionality. That's my point. I think point. you're making an inference, though. I think that we, we, I've never seen data on magnet schools exiting racial Well, the article data. points out that black and brown students are more affected by this policy. Okay. Well, so, uh, I, I that's worth talking about. Certainly, I, I, I kind of also think about it, though. I... You know, I'm known for being, uh, you know, some might say, you know, hard on teachers, super accountability for teachers, teachers that aren't cutting it often get to stay for life in many states, not all, but states like California is for sure. Certain places where once you're tenured, you know, you pretty much have to be convicted of a felony to be removed as a teacher. And Mm -hmm. so but all so I'm known for kind of being all that tough on teachers. But that said. The idea – there are also these stories where kids get involved in – even this week, actually, in the Choice Media Newswire, kids are, get involved in, like, fistfights, and nobody's stopping them because the teachers are afraid to intervene at all, and that uh, some of these classroom uh, and school um, – now, this isn't so much magnets either, I'll admit, but oftentimes, uh, you know, school culture – is degraded, has been degrading a lot over the past few decades, probably even since you were in school, certainly since I was in school. And so I'm I am sympathetic to teachers that want to be able to this is more behavioral than academic, of course. But I'm sympathetic. As am I. I'm and, sympathetic and, and, to teachers, yeah, yeah that, that 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 see uh, 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 sometimes it's it's uh you know it's 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 chaos. Absolutely. We have a we did an interview with a teacher called Lee McNulty in New Jersey. And uh, this YouTube video now has 1.1 million views. Anyone can type in uh, teacher chaos in YouTube and it's the first thing that comes up. This this teacher is a public school. He describes. Well, it's it's just shocking what he describes. So anyway, I'm just kind of saying that I think if when I was in school, I wasn't that well behaved, Alicia. <laughs> I think I would have been more behaved if I knew that if I screwed up bad enough. I would be taken out of my school and sent somewhere I did that you know that I didn't want to go. I think it would have affected me. And when you tell kids, no matter what you do, you're still going to stay in the same school. That's a green light that's a lot of kids take too far. And I get that. Let me let me add a couple more points because right, I feel I, I'm sorry. It's okay. I completely understand, and that that's why I said this one is hard for me okay. because there's a systematic issue here, right? About what happens to black and brown kids in terms of behavior issues across this country. And there's also, you know, I've run schools before I've managed principals and those, you know, teachers who reported to them who were frustrated about behaviors in their classroom, Um, students who were disruptive and, you know, prevented lots of other kids from being able to learn. I'm also a mom of a seventh grader who goes to a public school and it is, you know, frustrating to hear the stories every day. But here's the problem. So, so I do believe that there are behavior issues in schools. I do believe that there ought to be consequences for those, even more so in a magnet school because it's more of a privilege if you're there. For me, I went to a performing arts magnet school, so I get it. But until we address the fact that teachers aren't always trained, uh, they're not always culturally competent, until we know that public school systems are anti-racist, until there are some systems in place that we deal with the social issues that ex- that have existed in this country, we've got to I, I want to commend this school district for saying we're going to end these exit policies because we understand who it's impacting the most. So I, I think it's courageous on their part. I think it's the right thing to do. And I also believe there has to be a balance so that kids aren't able to disrupt classrooms and put teachers and other kids in danger. 
All right. Well, okay. So that's uh, that's see if we if we had a shade of disagreement on that uh, story, well, uh, buckle buckle. Let's buckle our seatbelts for the next one, Alicia. <laughs> All right. A, this one is a humdinger of a lawsuit, which is a word I'd like to use from I think probably the 1920s. <laughs> New Jersey school segregation lawsuit moves forward. Judge orders districts to be notified. Okay, a judge ruled that a major lawsuit against the state of New Jersey over racial and socioeconomic segregation in the public school system system can move forward. So it's not a ruling on the case. It's just that the Mm -hmm. case can go forward. But the complaint, first filed in 2018, alleges New Jersey has de facto segregation of its public school system because of district boundaries that roughly align with municipal boundaries and that these districts and towns differ in race and wealth, therefore creating school districts that differ in race and wealth. So Superior Court Judge Mary Jacobson refused to toss the case, that's what this news is, but ordered the plaintiffs uh, to notify all of the state school districts of the ongoing lawsuit. Um, and the, by the way, there's 584 districts in New Jersey now for those keeping count. It's, uh, you know, pretty much if you, uh, you know, I don't know, put up a hot dog stand on a corner, you're like called your own school district in New Jersey. Right. Anyway. Um, so the plaintiffs say this violates the New Jersey Constitution by racially segregating students and depriving them of a thorough and efficient education, which is the clause in the New Jersey Constitution. So, um, so what do you say to this, Alicia? This says school districts themselves are segregating groups of people and should there be, therefore be like eradicated. Well, then here, here I'm going to go back and say there are, you know, two sides of this. Right. I think the better question here is what are they really after when you think about schools and the impact of race and wealth? There are a lot of things that happen as a result. Right. What are those resources that are in those schools? Usually where there's less wealth and more color. Right. You're going to have a resource issue. What kind of books do they get? Do they have enough um, you know, funds to pay teachers? Do they have less effective teachers, which they're likely to have, right, if you're in a lower income uh, community? Well, but not in New Jersey. Uh, that's a, Since I live here, this, this is the one state where the, the lower income parent districts actually have more spend more money per student than the wealthy districts. Because of originally what's called the Abbott cases and it originally mm-hmm. carved out the 31 poorest districts, but now it's been expanded to not just those districts, but it's more of a formula. But anyway, it is it is true that in Newark, it's, you know, twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars per student. Wealthy uh, districts near outside of Newark are more like 17 grand a student. It is. Tr- uh, this is an exception state in that regard. Understood. Um, and I would love to have twenty four thousand dollars per kid in Georgia where we average around six thousand. Um, right. So it, it is incredible. But my point is, I think there there are some important questions to be asked about what happens in schools where there is less wealth. And so understanding because of the Abbott case and hopefully uh, more that funding is more equitable. My question is, how are those funds being spent? You know, who's running the districts? Who's running the schools? How much autonomy do principals have right to spend those dollars? Is it is there are there districts that are top heavy? Right. And the money is going to the district or is it going to the schools? So I'm going to be paying attention to this lawsuit uh, because it may answer some important questions, not just for New Jersey, but what happens across this country when it comes to kids, resources, wealth uh, and race in this country. Let's go to story number three, then. 
In the New York Times, uh, so, okay, American history textbooks can differ across the country, but the New York Times found this one publisher that have the same authors for history books, but oh my goodness, they are customized for students in different states, so they have different content. Hundreds of differences, the Times says, some subtle, some extensive, that... uh, you know, in, in they looked at eight commonly used American history textbooks in California and Texas. They, you know, picked red and blue, I think, pretty clearly in those two states' examples. And uh, they can't come to a consensus on fundamental question like capitalism and how restricted it should be or whether immigrants are a burden or a boon or, uh, you know, how to explain the legacy of slavery or – uh, all kinds of things like that. There's issue by issue. They say that the same authors, the same authors from the same publisher, kind of, sh- kind of, you know, present it sort of one way. I mean, like if we're worried about our politics becoming like div- bifurcating the country into like two encampments that don't, there's no more middle. You know, like the right and left don't talk to each other anymore. We now have our own cable news channels that like have different narratives and all this stuff. There's no, it, it wow, it's like right. Just read a history book do. now. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead, Alicia, your thoughts on this. Yeah, this was mind blowing for me, Bob. Like I started asking lots of questions in my head around what are the long term effects of this? And forgive my naivete, but I always believed when I was reading a history book that they were actually filled with facts. Right. And so you have <laughs> the facts and I, then you I have it used to be drier. Maybe now they're yeah. getting more editorial or something or no, yes. go ahead. Maybe, go ahead. Maybe. And, and it's it, the when you read this article and you look at the comparison, it's now about perspective more than it is about actual facts and what I would consider history. Yes. And so it's frankly, it's frightening to me to think about how an entire generation of kids from a certain part of a country or state. Um, in, in some cases, you're talking in a region because of the politics are going to learn history a completely different way than, you know, kids in another part of the country. And so what does that mean for our democracy? What does that mean for, you know, our future, um, how we see the world? Uh, and so it, this was very concerning for me. And, and it was also mind blowing that this is one publisher willing to have this much flexibility, right? Like I, I, what about calmly explaining both sides to a take? Like some people think this, some people think capitalism is the, you know, there are others that think capitalism is the other. I mean, I don't know. Would that be so terrible? No, it wouldn't. I think having, (laughs) I mean, I know my point of view would be great, but this is not, that's not what's happening in these books. These examples that we saw, right. It's a very clear, uh, opinionated perspective. Um, some baseless. Love being told they're right. They love being told the other side is wrong. They love being having their thoughts, their previously their previous conceptions like confirmed, right? Like so it sounds like it's starting earlier than I knew. But who gets to set the standard is my biggest question. Right. So if we say well, there's gotta be this standard, you you provide these perspectives, who gets to set that and do I agree with it, right? Or do well, you? Well, it's some sort of state school board or whatever, or something like that. Yeah, of course. And so appointed uh, by a governor. Yeah, yeah, inherently can be like political and all this stuff too. Uh, I did a tweet actually not too long ago, like a week, a week or two ago, that kind of said uh, I was like listing all these things that no one agrees on, and I'm like, you know, uh, par- all parents don't agree on, 
you know, what to say about sex ed and at what age to teach it and America's effect on the world. And everyone doesn't agree about evolution or what to say about climate or what to say about transgenderism. And and all parents don't agree on dress codes and they don't agree on grounds for suspension and they don't agree on how much social media monitoring a school should do. And they don't agree on this. They don't agree on that. They don't agree on this or that. Like to me, it's ultimately the school choice argument. And that's kind of the net of all. And we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Everyone in school choice and education policy knows him and everybody loves him. Alicia and I are delighted to be joined by the great Darrell Bradford, executive vice president at 50CAN. Darrell, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to thank you for the for the flattery. I'll take it seriously only because we've known each other for so long. Hey, Darrell. Uh, hey, Alicia, uh, how you doing? And you know Alicia, too, don't you? Of course, of course. From from uh, her time as a state legislator, uh, road dogging with me in the hallowed halls of Trenton. We go way back. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sounds like PTSD on Alicia's part, but uh, nevertheless, absolutely. In, in the national role, Darrell recruits and trains local leaders across the 50 CAN network for roles as CAN executive directors, that meaning state-based directors, fellows, and you CAN advocates. Darrell frequently contributes to education debates in print, digital radio, TV, media, etc. A native of Baltimore. He attended the St. Paul's School for Boys, which I believe, and I'm just going to add this because it's too much fun. By attending the St. Paul School for Boys, Darrell siphoned money away from the public schools. Okay, I wanted to keep that morning zoo sound effect thing in our program. I, I'm actually just trying it out for the first time. Anyway, but let's start right there, Darrell. If you don't mind, just that, that is the intro to the first question about siphoning money away from public schools, the ripe old chestnut of the school choice opponent world. Uh, it seems to be the single most often repeated objection more than, uh, you know, uh, private and charter schools discriminate against LGBT or black and brown kids or more than, you know, school choice uh, is only involves engaged parents or more than the op- other opposition points of school choice enriching the greedy venal billionaires who lust for avarice, you know, more than any of those other arguments. It seems like the siphon money away from traditional public schools is the most often heard objection to choice in the world of education. And to that, you say what? Um, the, it's Well, it's also the one that's sort of the most selectively applied. Uh, because, <laughs> look, when a kid goes from Baltimore to a, a school, a, a, like a public school in Baltimore to a public school in Columbia, or a public school in Newark to a public school in uh, Milburn, nobody says that kid is siphoning money. When a kid goes from a neighborhood school to a magnet school, nobody says anything. Uh, But if that kid goes to a charter school or, God forbid, that kid goes to a a private school on some kind of uh, tax credit or whatever, then, you know, I I mean, that's just the first step in uh, in the destruction of the republic. So, um, (laughs) you know, like like if look, if somebody wants to have a legitimate um, conversation about how we update you know, legacy public school districts, because there are a bunch of them, for more dynamic environments where people get to pick pick the schools that work for them. Like, I'm all for that. If somebody wants to say this kind of move is bad, 
that this kind of move is good and the good move is only good because I'm always the recipient, then that's not a conversation worth having. You know, you know, one distinction is always that, you know, siphoning money away as long as it goes to another unionized entity is fine. It's the siphoning money away when that money goes to a non-unionized entity that we clutch our pearls. And so I, I don't you know, know. like this. You know, all the, all the time I've known you, you've never had a problem putting a fine point on it. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, likewise, uh, please. But, uh, you know, the 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 Miss Virginia film with our friend Virginia, Virginia Walden Ford talks about the D.C., the D.C. voucher program where, you know, a lot of people in the, in our world complained about that program because they held harmless the public schools where the student then goes to a private school with the the voucher in D.C., and they make sure the D.C. schools have no economic penalty at all. And some people think that that's a problem with that kind of a choice program. Well, remember, I mean, the, it wasn't just a hold harmless. In the beginning, it was it was it was a payoff. And I say that it sounds pejorative, but it was just like the you know, the, it was there was political wrangling that cost money. There was the cost of the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, which was like a separate line item. And then the, the city's charter schools and the city's district schools each got the same amount of money. So it wasn't just that it started as a hold harmless. It was that it was it was like everybody got new money to kick that program off. Um, and I can understand why, uh, like some of our more like more purist think tanky friends would have problems with that, because if one of the, the rationales is that, you know, competition is a good thing. There'd be a consequence to being a bad public be, school. You a want a consequence public. to being a bad public school, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, on the other side, specifically in that instance, like you you, you either could get the program or you could, ha- you, or you could have ideological purity. And if you've gone with the latter, no kids would be in the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. Yes. So. As you know, you know, I've been out of the legislature for a few years now. Um, But it feels like uh, with the election of uh, Donald Trump and, of course, uh, the confirmation of uh, Betsy DeVos, that the the landscape has changed. The things that we used to talk about uh, as a movement, we sort of can't talk about because our allies aren't the same. And some folks that are allies, we may not want as allies any longer. So my questions are really, it's a two part. What issues like how do you define the ed reform movement these days um you know what's on our plate and what are we doing now in this environment for kids yeah so those are great questions and and uh, alicia uh, uh uh panelists privilege i just want to thank you for everything you've done both in the legislature as a school and as a school leader to improve educational opportunity for kids not just in georgia but elsewhere like you know thank I'm, you I'm, need to know that you are a soldier um, yes. <laughs> so um, I think you're kind of asking two questions. So, so uh, 2016 is obviously just a watershed year for our politics, but also for our um, our coalition. Uh, may, most people may you know may or may not know that like Ed Reform is one of the you know the 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 last best places where people with um, extremely differing views on lots of different issues were part of, you know were partnering across party and ideological lines, narrow slivers of shared interest to, you know, improve the world. Um, And I I happen to believe that that is a a feature, not a defect of the movement. Others may differ. Um, But I I also think it's sort of um, a mistake to solely ascribe this to the 2016 elections and the um, uh, and the change in 
the country's politics at that moment. If you look at education, like an Education Next poll, um, they do it annually. In 2012, for instance, support among um, for charter schools among Democrats started to drop. And you could say that that, you know, you know look, Teachers Union is about 60 percent Democrat. Like, obviously, they have a foot on the gas there. Um, you can look at the confluence of um, uh, blowback on state testing being used to evaluate teachers plus Common Core and the sort of weird um, coalition that made between uh, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, progressives and soccer, mo- like, you know, Arnie Duncan soccer moms and teacher unions and and uh, um, anti-Obama sort of like localist Tea Party people or whatever, um, you know, we, our politics had never seen anything like that. So, right. so, so I think this is a, a, a longer um, trend that it's easy to say, oh, it's the president, but it's not just, it's just not that simple in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but m- more importantly, I would just say that um, as a person who's been doing this for a long time, as I know you have, and certainly as, as, uh, as Bob has, um, you know, we've been having the same fight for a long time. Right. Like I, you can't wind me up to tell somebody that a charter school is a public school no more. I don't want to hear it. Right. right. <laughs> but, <laughs> Can we stop having that argument, please? That's what I've said so many times. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I think we used to have these um, very, a very clear set of ideas about what we were going to use, the policy tools we had to solve. And they were, you know, largely about improving um, uh, uh uh, academic achievement for low-income kids of color who had very little choice. Um, and the, uh, like, sadly, the political moment has changed. And particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle, it seems like affluent white, white progressives are calling the shots now. And mm-hmm. so kids for whom we focused our policy efforts like, don't have the same place at the table. Um, and you can see that in a, in a lot of places. And that's sad, but I think it's kind of true. Um, on the other side of this, I think... We got out of the uh, sort of the the creation business um, of, you know, like building, you know, new new schools that were going to meet the the challenges of kids that, you know, we sort of didn't know, like that kind of stuff. And we got into what I'll just call like the replication business. And, the, and there's nothing pejorative about this. Like in the first 25 years, 30 years of education policymaking, you know, some amazing things were done that lifted lots of kids, you know, uh, like out of really dire situations that without those things would never have happened. Um, But for me, at least at this point, and I think there's kind of an emerging, you know, consensus on this. um, The policies we use to get here are not going to get us to the next place we want to be. And um, a lot of time I talk about this. It's like a it's like a problem of creativity. So, you know, if you know me, which I know, you know, um, I like movies and um, Blade Runner is one of my favorite movies. And Blade Runner is one of my favorite movies because it describes the future so well that people just kept making movies in that universe. They're like, yeah, Ridley Scott hit that. You know, we have flying cars and robots and, you know, android snakes and whatever. Uh, you know, big corporations and, and that kind of thing. And so for the longest time, instead of trying to come up with a new vocabulary for the future, people just made movies in, in that future. And I think from an education policy standpoint, we, we have the same problem right now. Like we've been in a, a well-described rule set for a really long time. And right now we're trying to figure out how to talk about the future in a way that just engages people like how, how they used to be, you know, like when the first charter school was made. 
Um, and it helps us build a new political coalition that has the, the best features of the old one, but that has an eye toward the future. So it's a, uh, you know, it's really complicated time to think about what we could do and defend what we did. But, um, but I, I hope we can get on the same page about that. You know, it's funny, Darrell, you brought up the Ed Next poll because I actually had that for the 2019 version just for this next question of mine. So great minds think alike, good I guess. Segue, but, good segue. Yeah, no, there's a, Perfect. but there's an absolute separation between, uh, they, they talk about Democrats and how they view three different things, charter schools, targeted vouchers, and universal vouchers. Yep. So, you know, targeted vouchers usually means means-tested vouchers for low income. Uh, so, and the, the lower than 50% rates are the, the white Democrats, the non-Hispanic white Democrats, charter schools support 33%, uh, universal vouchers 46%, targeted means-tested vouchers 40%. So the, the white Democrats are the below 50% numbers. The, the black and Hispanic Democrats are it's between 70% for targeted vouchers for black Democrats, 70% support, 67% Hispanic support for targeted vouchers. Uh, so there does seem to be this divide. And just why, and just to, I don't know, belabor this for a second, I, I, I don't know if you've been watching the the, the primary debates. In I'm the, trying not to, man. <laughs> I mean, what, what's the like purpose of watching salts? them? Huh? What's the purpose of watching them? They don't yeah. have that education. <laughs> it's like, well, if you're an insomniac, maybe you'd say, hey, these are great. I can finally get some sleep. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seemed, so Andrew Wang was like the yeah, Andrew Yang was the one guy who uh, you know had been kind of solidly pro charter. Very tepidly, Cory Booker in the third or fourth debate came out and said, "I expanded uh, a good, you know, high performing charters." Only after he first said he closed down low performing charters, and then we now have Mayor Bloomberg, who's kind of on the horizon. He's at you know around five percent after two hundred million dollars in advertisements, but he doesn't get on the debate stage this week. Uh, but in general, what we're seeing from the front runners in the Democrats is a lot of, uh, you know, charter disparagement and choice disparagement. And so, Darrell, I just wondered what you think of that. What, what is this? And I should also just say we had Mayor de Blasio who said he, quote, hates charter schools before he dropped out. If you the primary historians who might have recalled that blip in time that Mayor de Blasio was a presidential candidate. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so where where is the where are Democrats with choice and charters, Jarrell? Yeah, so it's a it's a good question. I, I mean, you know, I guess it depends on which dem, which Democrats you ask. Uh, so so as you 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 cited and I appreciate you doing it, you know, there's a divide between Democrats of, of color and, and white Democrats on the choice issue. Um, and I think there are lots of reasons for that. One of them being that um, there's, there's a lot of the time a divide between Democrats of color and, and white Democrats on, on myriad issues, uh, yes. because essentially we live in different countries. Uh, yes. if, if you think about it. So I just want to. If I could just quietly say a lot of the white Democrats are the teachers. Uh, yeah, that, that, is, that is also the hey the the it's, it's all, the thing I always I always laugh when people are like integration is like it's the number one thing and it's like I'm I'm obviously inclined to believe that an, an integrated society is a better one but I'm like the first thing you need to do is integrate the teaching force which is like eighty <laughs> percent like eighty percent white so just throw that out there um, but the um, the the thing that I would um, so look the divide is there 
Right. And it's because we, you know, as a people like African-Americans in this country are the only people who've ever had laws on the books prohibiting us from learning. Right. I mean, our our, our experience with the um, with the institutions of American public education is just very different than that of, you know, the system, the, the folks for whom these systems were set up. Uh, and so we should respect that and just understand that we have different values and that that comes out in how we deal with these issues. Right. So that's just the, the one thing. The second thing I would just say, which I which I believe is is more troubling, is that um, it's not just opposition right now, um, because the teachers unions in particular are ascendant, as I think, you know, like organized labor is sort of ascendant right now. And you see it across um, uh, you know, Bernie's campaign and, and a lot of folks' campaigns uh, right now. Um, but the there's a there's just sort of a like an effort to almost rewrite history in a way that 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 just wipes the success of a place like Newark or New York City or Arizona or or you know a, any of these places off of the map. And and it is it's um it would be shocking if there was if there were no historical precedent for it. So I keep looking at this at this um, this uh, 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 excerpt from Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, where um, there's a speech that Stalin is given, and at the end they they ask everybody in the audience to stand up and uh, and 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 applaud Stalin, and so Solzhenitsyn's right about all these people, and they're clapping for like. Eight or nine yes. minutes. And, and he's I remember like, the story. Yeah, that's a good he's one. Like, he's like, yo, the old people are getting tired. They've been clapping for like eight or nine minutes. And then at 11 minutes, this old dude who runs the paper factory sits down. And then everybody else sits down. And that night, they arrest the first guy who sits down and send him to a re-education camp. And on the way out, they tell him, never be the first guy to stop clapping. And it's difficult not to see such zealotry sort sort of coming out of the the teachers unions making their demands right now and the democratic presidential candidates desperate to show their fealty because they think the teachers unions are going to get them over the top and the casualty of this is is three million kids largely of color who are in schools that um that they aren't zoned for and that are charter Right. I think I think though I think Democrats will pay a price in the black vote this cycle. I have uh, friends who disagree with me on that. They think I'm crazy, but I think we'll see a lot of uh, black voters uh, stay home. Actually, I actually. Quite frankly, I think a lot of the black voters aren't, aren't, you know, aren't that cool with sanctuary cities policies and some other things like that, too. So I, I think there'll be a change in the electorate in 2020. But have you, have you seen so just a, a third party thing? Jonathan Capert has a good piece in The Washington Post where he's just like Biden is on top because black voters want it that way. Um, <laughs> and it really mm-hmm. is sort of like uh, like a hot take, I think, on, on what you're getting at, Bob, which is just like and we'll go full circle. You know, black voters. Uh, like Biden's issues, right? They find him familiar and they think he's the person they want to hire to do the job, which is take back the presidency, not be, not be the most progressive, right? Not make college free, right? Not, not, you know, do all these other things that seem to have captured the imagination of the candidates. You know, they, they just want a different person in the White House. They think yeah. this person would do that. So right, we're running along. Alicia, well, next, uh, we, we, we're running long on time, but go ahead, Alicia. I got one more question about I want to shift the 
subject for a minute, even though I'm very tempted to talk about the presidential election and black voters, but I'm not going to do that. I want to hear about ESSA, right? So ESSA was signed into law by President Obama in 2015, and at the time it was the promise, right, of states leading on K-12 education reform, uh, and certainly that was when I was in the legislature and or right before that. And so there were a lot of exciting things that happened in his during his tenure. And so my question is, Darrell, what governors, legislatures, you know, state education commissioners would you say are providing the most leadership in the SS in the ESSA era? Yeah, that's a tough question. I, I mean, it, I've so I've been underwhelmed um, by all by the um, by the lack of a groundswell <laughs> of uh, of federalist sort of leaning change that's happened now that all the states uh, have control. Um, and I, I would say that the two people that I thought were sort of best positioned to work on this, um, and the, those being um, Hannah Scandera and John White, um, are both no longer state chiefs. Uh, Hannah formerly being in New Mexico and uh, uh, John formerly being in uh, Louisiana. Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... Um, if, if you ask me who should we look at, I would say you could look at the things those guys did. Um, but right now, it, I, I really do not know who to point to. I've never thought uh, of that. Jarrell, that's a really good point. I've never thought about that, that suddenly now these states were unleashed with ESSA and they kind of have been like – it's it's kind of like parents leaving town telling the kids, hey, you can have a party if you want. And the kids are like, right. nah, we'll watch TV. That's right. <laughs> we're, we're, we're good. Fight over. That's, that's a good example. A good, good analogy, by the way. I mean, the other thing I would say, too, and you can think about some of Lamar Alexander's um, uh, stuff on this, was that in his mind, local control meant state control. I'm, he, I'm pretty sure he's like quoted about this. At, but the, the the locals, like and in particular the local education associations, they were like, no, 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 no. This is like districts doing whatever, and because that's the highest point of leverage for them. Like the the more you centralize anything, the the less they're able to sort of assert their their will over it. So you know, we used to have kind of like you know a, a central framework around which progress was supposed to happen, and fifty people trying to meet it. Now, you know, there's like 15,000 ways, allegedly, to say that, mm. that you know, to, to decide how we should go forward. I, I'm not going to poo-poo it all because, I'm, you know, I'm not in every school district. I, I do think that we are on the edge of something that could either be like amazingly creative or dangerously irrational. And it feels like it's going toward the latter. Mm. It could be both. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think it could be AI, actually. It could be kind of a technological revolution, really. But uh, in, in our remaining few moments with uh, Dur the great Darrell Bradford, uh, the great. As, as point of personal privilege, as they say in Robert's Rules of Order, uh, Darrell, who was Dan Gaby and what's something you learned from him? Um, so Dan was, uh, I mean, he wasn't my real father, but he might as well have been my father. Uh, he was a father and a mentor to me. And when I first started working in education, I worked for him. He was a, um, he was the executive director of an organization called E3 that I used to work for. Um, he was a Democrat. Um, he was a, a, a like a, um, an entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, and he, was, he, and he was a school choice guy, like in, in, in every way possible. Uh, and, uh, he used to say to me, you know, I used to think we just set up a system and go away and everything would be fine. And then he said he realized that we were just delivering people into another kind of monopoly. And he thought that was bad. 
Um, and so um, other than teaching me to be like a professional and hopefully humble and hopefully a good human being, um, one of the things I think he taught me was that no group of people is a monolith. Um, and within every group of people, political, ethnic, financial, um, there are divisions and you need to respect those things. And, uh, and when it's time to, you know, make a coalition, you need to be aware of it and divide, divide, divide. And uh, I'm glad you brought, I know he was, Dan liked you a lot too, Bob. I'm glad we both knew him together. Oh, he was an inspiration for me. Uh, both you guys were back in, the, in my first days in this. And so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is the great Darrell Bradford. He's executive vice president of 50CAN. For more information about 50CAN, go to 50can.org, 50can.org. And Darrell, thanks again for being our yeah, guest. Yeah, thanks for all you do. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What is the tweet of the week? AFT says their endorsement process requires engagement from all our members, and we are making sure there is time for that. I don't see a national endorsement before Iowa. Hmm. Oh, so the AFT union says they're going to after the Iowa caucuses, then it's funny how it's not like they don't take a vote or anything. It's just like Randy Weingarten sits around in her office and just, you know, decides. decides. Just, yeah, right. It's, I've always thought it was weird about how unions do that. They just like, we're going to decide, you know, we, we, all of you pay us. And now through the megaphone that we have, because all of you pay us, I'm just going to pick my personal favorite <laughs> person. There's no, no poll, no survey, nothing. I always thought that was weird how unions do those kinds of endorsements. Yeah, and it appears to me, as I've watched a couple of the debates and listened to some of our candidates, uh, that the contest has already started. It's whoever can be the most anti-charter candidate is going to <laughs> apparently, you know, earn that endorsement. And that's, it's frustrating for me, I might yes, add, but yes. that's what it appears uh, from my end. Yes. And I say at the Democrats peril. And the commentary of the week coming to us from WashingtonMonthly.com. This called Masters of None by Grace Gedya, I think is the right way pronunciation. Pardon if I've mispronounced Grace's last name. But she writes, teachers across the country earn grad degrees to get raises. Turns out those degrees don't improve student learning. They just fatten universities' bottom line. And this says what, oh my gosh, almost everybody I know has thought for so long is the case in terms of uh, these master's degrees, sometimes that have nothing to do with the classroom. And all these districts and states pay out you know, if you aggregate it, many millions of dollars in terms of like extra money because I've got my, you know, master's in French film making or something like that. Uh, but I'm, I, there's a law that says I have a master's degree, which New York and Maryland, Connecticut all require teachers to get master's degrees. Well, OK, I've got my master's degree. You got to pay me more now. And they're, you know, like a second grade reading teacher or something that has zero impact on their work. It's a, it's no private industry would ever have a policy that getting irrelevant parchment, you know, to university degrees ought to be compensated. And yet here's what we have in public education. Alicia, what do you say to that? I agree wholeheartedly. Oh, and we know the research already says it. I'm, I feel the same way, frankly, about even certification, which is even more uh, controversial because as I've seen some of the most talented teachers, it's not the certification, it's their skill, it's their hunger, right? Thank it's you. their talent in the classroom and their Thank ability you. to reach kids. 
And there's all kinds of teachers that, yes, that don't have education degrees at all, let alone a master's degree. They, they don't have, you know, please, uh, like it's often been said, you know, Steve Jobs didn't have a college degree and neither did Bill Gates and neither of them would be allowed to teach computer science at a traditional public school in America. Because Insane. why? Oh, it's, we pretend that, you know, when in fact we all know that competence is not based purely on college degrees. So, I yes, I agree completely. So just uh, quickly to wrap up next week, everybody, the great Dick Comer from the Institute for Justice will be on to talk about the Espinoza case. It's headed to the U.S. Supreme Court and it will resolve a conflict between an old U.S. Supreme Court judgment called Zellman from 2002 and Montana's state Supreme Court precedent from 2018, all about what's known as Blaine Amendments. But that'll be next uh, next episode of the Learning Curve podcast. And for now, on behalf of Alicia Thomas Cromartie, I'm Bob Bowden. We'll see you next time.